Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. Today I was joined by Amit Cook Ranger. He's a YouTuber with over 20,000 followers, specializing on Palantir. Palantir's stock has been greatly benefited by the AI narrative and is up over 140% in the last six months. So, today we talked about all things Palantir. I played devil's advocate and had Amir tell me why he is so bullish on Palantir, how he sees the prospects of growth, how AI technology is going to change the world, how he thinks about some of the bearish thesis points like stock-based compensation and profitability, his thoughts on Peter Thiel, and overall how he feels about the stock going forward and why he is so heavily invested in this stock. I really had a great time talking about this with Amit. He is very knowledgeable when it comes to Palantir. He is on top of every single bit of news and data coming out relating to the company. So please go ahead and follow him if you'd like to stay up to date with what's going on with this company. As always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This is episode 15 of The Pragmatic Investor with James Ford. Welcome to the show, Amit Cookrager. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, James. I appreciate it. All right. So I recently stumbled onto your YouTube channel. Uh, you do some great videos, mostly on Palantir. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story, how you got started on YouTube. Uh, so I started YouTube really like 10 years ago. I was playing around on YouTube, been a junkie on YouTube for a long time. And YouTube consumes the majority of my attention in terms of social media. I always wanted to be a YouTuber. I, I kind of always felt like I was going to be a YouTuber. And then I tried a bunch of things, nothing really worked. And, you know, you kind of go through the ups and downs of it. I, I really started getting into stocks about four or five years ago. And so 2021, I was like, let me just make some videos on stocks, see what people think. And, um, you know, they started doing decently well, in particular, the videos on, around Palantir. And that's when I kind of decided, you know, could I be the guy that really analyzes one company in depth and make content consistent around that? Because that would be way more fun. Um, in terms of just building a brand versus like talking about every single stock in the market. Right. And so that's what I've done. And so over the past few years, since, since 2021, the channel has grown. We have about 21,000 subscribers now. And uh, yeah, it's been a fun little community. I do a market open every day. We have a, we have a podcast called Finance Junkies, which gets about 500 people live every night. Uh, so it's been a fun journey. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, you've got a big audience in quite a short span of time. It's interesting. You do focus that, you know, there's talk about finding a niche. That's a very particular niche, just pretty much focused on Palantir. What What is it about Palantir? Why, what made you focus on Palantir? Why do you like, let's, let's make this kind of a two-part question. Why do you like Palantir as a company? And then maybe we can talk about it more as a stock and in terms of finance, because I know that those are two very different things. Yeah, I think, uh, well, 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 I'll start off with the, the stock. I invested in 2021 because I saw them being one of the most revolutionary softwares that could be integrated in every single vertical. So you got healthcare, you got energy, supply chain, logistics, um, the drug discovery, pharmaceuticals. I just saw their software being used everywhere. And I was like, I want to be a part of the journey of this platform. And that was a very elementary way of investing in 2021. It wasn't like in-depth due diligence. But what it did is once I had a position, you know, I, I bought a thousand shares at 25 bucks, so a little bit early. But when you got 25,000 in a company, you start researching a little bit more. And as I kept doing my research and research, I just got more and more convicted on the thesis, the story, and we can get into it. But like, I just realized that I think this is going to be one of the best bets over the next 10 years when it comes to stocks. And um, so I started making content around it. And then, so that's the stock 
side of the question, the, the, the company side of the question is when I started making content, I realized there was so much news to cover. And really, the only way you can make content around one company is if there's a lot of things to analyze. Mm -hmm. and with Palantir, you've got this whole unique philosophical vision they have of protecting Western democracy. Then you've got the actual technology, which is hard to break down. Then you've got the eccentric leaders like Peter Thiel and Alex Karp that are very unique founders of the company to talk about. And you've got the defense technology. They're integrated with the government. So there's just so much to get into. And because I said they're part of every industry, there's so many things to talk about how they impact every single industry that it's uh, it's just really exciting at this time, not to mention artificial intelligence is having its its day in the sun and Palantir is one of the key AI stocks in the market right now. So there's a lot to cover, a lot to talk about, and it's exciting to, to be here to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I write on Seeking Alpha and I have noticed Palantir definitely one of the stocks that gets the most kind of attention. Now, let's take it back a little bit. What is it about Palantir then? Let's just pretend we don't know anything about Palantir. What does Palantir do and why is it so revolutionary? Well, Palantir essentially says, look, all of your data that you are generating as a company or as a government organization, hospital, et cetera, uh, is incredibly valuable. And in order for the data to mean something, to garner insights and business intelligence, you need to be able to put that data into a piece of software that can use AI, machine learning, predictive si simulations to be able to give you acknowledgments and insights on the, 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 that data to do something meaningful. Now, this may sound kind of boring and esoteric, right? But when you really dig deep into it, every problem that we are having today is a big data problem. Healthcare is a big data problem. Mm -hmm. uh, climate change is a big data problem. You know, Russia invaded Ukraine. Not only is there a big data problem in the context of Ukraine having the uh, mission critical software to be able to fight back against Russia, but every company that had to leave Russia, like Spotify, Netflix, Coca-Cola, their supply chains flipped overnight. Their businesses flipped overnight. And many businesses were affected and you need software at the core that understands the uh, essentially ontological vision of your data. Ontology is just a, a metaphor for the state of being, the state of being of your data, of your company, and be able to tell you what to do, be able to tell you how to navigate that. In a world of AI, data only becomes exacerbated in terms of its importance, because now every company is trying to see how can we use the data that we have, the, the oil of our machine, and be able to generate more profits and reduce costs by getting insights from that data. And the and the pattern recognition and the matching and the actual insights from that data don't happen just by looking at a spreadsheet. You need very complex software to be able to synthesize all of that to then be able to drive the insights that help you make decisions. And, and that's essentially what Palantir does. They have a piece of software, they have a variety of pieces of software, but their software takes all your data. And in you know one of the CEOs that I was talking to who used it says it's the ninth uh, wonder of the world. It's like magic in terms of what it does for an organization. And mm -hmm. so my bet is that Palantir will scale that software over the next 10, 15 years, uh, and many companies around the world will be using it. Absolutely. Well, there's definitely no denying that kind of uh, growth story, especially with the newfound kind of interest in AI. But a lot of investors have concerns. There's a couple of main concerns, I would say, with Palantir. One, of course, is the profitability and then there's also a lot of talk surrounding uh, the kind of stock-based compensation and how that is also affecting the profitability, of course. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, uh, stock-based compensation to me is not really a concern. It's down 27.5% year over year. In 2020, it was bad, right? It was like 70% of revenues was stock-based. I think that like a billion dollars mm -hmm. of stock-based. It was ridiculous. Uh, but it's gone down significantly. I mean, last year, I think it was 564 million. This year, hopefully, it's closer to like 400, 450 million. Um, so, I mean, stock-based compensation is trending downwards, which is really good uh, because it's less dilution for shareholders. But the other thing you have to remember is that 
these companies are poaching away people from Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon. These are some of the smartest people in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to get those people, you need to give them an incentive for them to feel like they have skin in the game, right? Or else why would they leave a $700,000 package at Google? Um, they have to feel like the stock is going to rise at Palantir. So they'll take less as a base salary and more in options for stock. So I think stock-based compensation is important to incentivize people. The other thing is uh, Palantir is now gap profitable. So all of the stock-based dilution in terms of cre in creating a negative effect for shareholders has been mitigated by the fact that the company has figured out how to be more financially disciplined and actually generate some profits. And so, and, and the company said they're going to be profitable this entire year. And if we are profitable this entire year, we have the potential to be included into the S&P 500 index starting 2024. So hopefully SPC doesn't trend upwards and, and ruin that. Right, absolutely. Like you said, we've seen a change in the trend, especially in the last couple of quarters that in my opinion has been very encouraging, at least in those, in those kind of areas. Now, I recently saw one of your videos, you talk about how Germany kind of rejected Palantir. I was wondering what your thoughts are then in terms of the growth, because of course Palantir does a lot of work for governments. Is that any concern to you that maybe foreign governments aren't going to take on Palantir with all this issue with data protection? Is that kind of a risk that you see on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, that's always a concern. I think the biggest problem is, um, you know, a lot of countries still have a negative stigma of Palantir or even different municipalities within those countries like this. And in that same Germany video, I read another article yesterday that says a lot of some of the head officials in Germany are really upset that they're not using Palantir and they're kind of pushing back against uh, the rejection of Palantir. So I think these countries, it's just a matter of time till they come back. The negative stigma associated with Palantir is that it's a company that is going to exploit and manipulate your data. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, Palantir really, quite frankly, doesn't care about your data. Uh, they're not Facebook. They're not Amazon. They don't need to monetize it for attention. They just need to use their software to help enhance what your data is doing. It's like a picks and shovels play on the data. It's not a, hey, we we store your data in our servers. And we like, that's, that's just not what this company does. But the problem is people have such a negative misconception of it for whatever reason um, that Germany or European countries that are more stringent on GDPR regulations and data privacy feel very hesitant. Mm -hmm. And Karp has been, you know, Alex Karp, the CEO, has been in Germany many times. He knows Germany very well. He's given a lot of public conversations and lectures and all this stuff, trying to educate people about what Palantir does. But unfortunately, you know, it's sometimes it's politics and it's hard. I think at the end of the day, the best software will win. And mm -hmm. if they are having the problems they're having, they're going to come back to Palantir. It's just a question of when. Absolutely. That's a great point when you say the best software will win. In that regard, what are Palantir's competitors? Because oftentimes you hear about Palantir, it almost sounds like you know no one can do what Palantir does. I guess that may be true to an extent, but um, how do you feel about the competitive landscape? Yeah, I mean, look, there are there aren't really that many competitors given the the specific software that it, that it, the specific functions that it does. Now there are other SaaS players like Snowflake. Databricks, Datadog, they all work in the data space. I think Palantir has a, a, a more unique differentiated product in regards to the ontology that it creates for clients and sort of the data analytics platform that is agnostic on whatever cloud computing platform you're using that integrates and creates a true pipeline of data to be able to get results and information and insights immediately on the, the digestion of that data. So like Snowflake is more of a, a data warehouse whereas Palantir is an interpretation of the data. And then the question is just which one's more valuable. Snowflake may have more customers because it's easier to store your data, but is it really transformational for your company? Probably not, which is why it's even hard to compare them. So 
A lot of Paltrow's competition, to be honest, is legacy IT infrastructure within the organization itself that doesn't want to adopt change. So their biggest sales problem is fighting with these guys trying to be like, hey, like this is what you should do versus necessarily fighting off other uh, competitors in the in the SaaS marketplace. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And now Palantir does receive a lot of its revenues from government right now. Do you expect then that in the future, the private market is going to take a much bigger share of that as, you know, AI becomes a little more integrated with the uh, kind of regular business processes? Yeah, I, th I think commercial revenue is flipped. I mean, it used to be 60-40 government commercial. Now it's it's like 70-30 commercial mm -hmm. government. Don't quote me exactly on those numbers, but it is flipped. I believe commercial is a majority of revenue now. U.S. commercial growth is at 67% year over year. Um, so, I mean, U.S. commercial, the compounded annual growth rate on that is absolutely phenomenal. And if we can keep that going, that's going to be very good. The problem is international CAGR has not been good on the commercial side and on the government side. So it's ironic because before, a couple of years ago, people didn't want to invest in the stock because they thought too much of the government revenue was coming. Now it's like not enough government revenue is coming or not as much as before. So people are weary. Um, I, I think the big thing is, as you said, when AI implements within every single business, the TAM for Palantir just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, the studies that I've seen says this is a 2.7 to 4.4 trillion dollar market by 2033 in terms of enterprise spend on AI. And if that's the case, Palantir just needs to get a slice of that market just from the commercial side to be able to win. Now, on the government side, they are one of three companies in the world that has IL level six security clearance with the Department of the Defense, which is uh, Microsoft and Amazon, which are trillion dollar companies that have, have that level of security clearance. And then and Palantir, this like $30 billion company, also has that level of security clearance. So in, in the context of the government, I think Palantir is going to be able to have a very, very sticky revenue business with the government, and mm -hmm. especially in the United States. And that's not going away. The government will not let Palantir fail because Palantir is crucially integrated into a lot of the software on the mission, on the war field, and just in terms of the CDC and the NIH, all these organizations that use their software. Palantir just got $110 million last week from the Space Force, and they had no competition for those contracts because they were sole source contracts, meaning no one even bid for those contracts versus single source contracts. And so, look, I think government revenue is going to be very bullish over the long term, even though it'll go up and down based on the defense budget. But commercial is where our growth has to be. And if we can keep expanding commercial, then it's going to be big for company for the, for the company. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, the thing that is often overlooked by investors is, you know, the importance of management. And when it comes to Palantir, we have you know, quite a notable CEO, Alex Karp. I'd, like, I'd love to hear your thoughts about um, Alex Karp. I think Carp is probably the perfect CEO for the company. Uh, I think you need a leader that is very unique and eccentric and different and uh, just has a personality that is uh, one of those personalities that makes you really excited to invest in the company. I mean, to be fair, if Alex Carp was not the CEO, I don't know if I would invest in Palantir. He was one of the reasons mm -hmm. uh, why I wanted to invest in this company. Carp fought with investors in the early stages of Palantir to not do business in Russia and China because he realized the software they were creating was so unbelievably important that allowing Russia and China to have access to it would not be good at the at the behest of investors who wanted profits. And so he's been constantly one of those fearless CEOs that has been very convicted on his thoughts and his ideas. Mm -hmm. And I like that about him. I also like that he's very philosophical. The philosophical nature of how he thinks about the world, society, the way data protection and privacy should be implemented. 
to me, is part of the moat in terms of how they construct their technology products. And it also allows him to sell it. I mean, he can go to Europe and say, we don't steal your data. And whether they believe it or not, he's telling the truth. And he's one of the only CEOs that's able to do that. He was the first CEO to visit Vladimir Zelensky after the invasion because Palantir's software was given to Ukraine in order for them to be able to you know, do a ton of things in terms of fight on the battlefield and protect their sovereignty. So now the Ministry of Reconstruction, of Digital Reconstruction at Ukraine has contracted Palantir to help them reconstruct the entire country as the war comes to an end. So I just think there's, you got to get a certain guy to kind of close those deals. I mean, like, mm -hmm. like every CEO is not the type of CEO to close deals. You really need a founder type of CEO to get these types of deals of this magnitude. And I think Carp's one of those guys that understands this company very intimately over the past 20 years. And he's the guy I'm putting my money on to take us to the promised land. Absolutely. Well, he seems to be doing a good job so far. Now, I was wondering if you ever think about uh, the macro outlook. How does that affect your investment decision? Are you concerned about a potential recession? And is, wouldn't Palantir be quite badly affected given kind of an economic downturn in that scenario? Is that something you think about at all? Well, you know, I, I was I was buying Palantir under $6. Uh, so, I mean, I've been a believer of the stock for a very long time. Is a little overvalued right now, sure, because the growth rates can't really justify the valuation, which is fine. The market's giving it a premium because they think it'll grow into that valuation. Um, so, you know, it's up to them now, the ball's in their court for them to be able to show progress. And then the market will, you know, probably even give them a higher valuation because they didn't even expect that much growth. The, 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 the thing about a recession is I think we've had a recession. I think 2022 was the recession. We are still technically in a recession. If you look at the bond yields and, and they're inverted, the two year and the 10 year uh, treasury bills. So like, I think we're in a recession. I, I think, you know, this is the, the infamous saying, maybe we'll have a soft landing and maybe when we land, it won't be this catastrophic moment. It'll just be like, all right, we went through it. Equities were down 80, 90%. I mean, stocks were down. We all dealt with it. If inflation's coming down, it's going to be very hard for the Fed to be able to justify rate hikes, which means even if we get one more rate hike, I think in 2024, we'll start to get some cuts. And when we start to get cuts, the market's going to be excited. So yes, if we have a recession, it'll be bad for Palantir. If we have a soft landing with rate cuts, then we probably avoid a pretty massive recession and it'll be good for Palantir. And so the question is, you know, if you have a long-term view on the company, it really doesn't matter if you're buying it at $8 or $15, if you think the stock's mm -hmm. going to be $200, just a question of, you know, how long it takes for that to happen. Absolutely. Now, you brought up the issue of the valuation. So how do you think about Palantir? Do you have like a price target? And if so, because you're obviously very convinced, you're holding long-term. Are there levels though at which you're thinking, okay, well, now I'm going to take some profit if it reaches this level? How do you think about that? It depends on the speed, right? Like if Bouncer gets to $30 tomorrow, yes, I will take profits because it obviously doesn't deserve to be close to $80 billion market cap right now. Uh, I don't want to sell until 2030, quite frankly. And even past 2030, I want to hold my shares. I just see the company really doing what I think they can do. And, I, and a lot of times you got you to gotta give them time to play out the narrative, right? So even if you have a, a bad couple of quarters, bad couple of years, if you look at every big company that has become a big company, there were bad years. And you just, if you believed in the thesis and nothing broke the thesis, then you give them the time to do what they need to do. I do not think Palantir is one of those companies that is going to disappoint. Management is going to disappoint. Alex Karp, the founder and CEO, is going to disappoint over the next 10 years because they weren't able to execute on their mission of becoming the most important software company in the world. Because everything I see today, every press release I see today, is they are fulfilling that mission, even if it's not at the rate of customer growth in Q2 that people want to see. And as a result of that, yeah, I think it could be $150 by 2030. I think it's going to be very similar to Snowflake. Do I, you know, could that happen? Could it be 30 bucks? Could it be 50 bucks? Could it be 300 bucks? Sure. But I think a $200 billion market cap is uh, very possible 
uh, given I think that's what Snowflake has been able to do over the past 17 years. I think it was like 300 billion at the top. Mm -hmm. A trillion dollars, I don't see that happening because Palantir doesn't have a consumer product. So I would never expect the valuation to go that high. But could it be a nice 10x from here over the next 10 years? I think so. If they hit an S curve on growth and they become one of the most important software companies in the world. But that's the fun of investing because we have no idea if that's going to happen. We have a hypothetical guess and then we just have to see if it plays out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, mention of course you're quite invested in palantir that's where most of your attention is going but do you have any other stocks that you're interested in or at least sectors because of course you've had a lot of hype with this ai stuff there's a lot of other stocks that have become quite popular right now uh is there anything else on your radar yeah i like sofi a lot i mm -hmm. think uh the fintech space is incredibly interesting Forbes did an article yesterday basically showing how uh, fintech is beating out legacy banks in terms of getting Gen Z and millennials onto their platforms and using them as a sort of one-stop shop for financial services. Uh, I think SoFi is incredibly undervalued right now. Anthony noted the CEO is an absolute rock star. SoFi is trading close to book value or slightly above book value. And at the end of the day, it's a bank and a bank is a great business. Uh, and it's, mm -hmm. and if you look at some of the market caps of the biggest banks in the world, you know, they're in the hundred billion dollar plus market cap. So if it's like a seven, eight billion dollar company and their growth is phenomenal. I mean, they're adding 400, they're adding almost 450,000 new users every single quarter. And these are users that are highly monetizable because if you get your student loan from SoFi, you'll get your mortgage from SoFi. If you're investing on SoFi's platform, you might think of getting a car loan from SoFi. I mean, like the ability for them to upsell is amazing. And this is all of this is great as a bank. And then on top of that, they acquired a company for $1.2 in April 2020 called Galileo, which is essentially a payment processing API, application programming interface, where they're able to license that software to other fintechs that are able to do payment processing on it. And that should have SaaS-like revenue margins, you know, 80% adjusted over the next couple of years if they're able to scale that product. Growth on that product called Galileo has slowed down a little bit, but if they can reaccelerate that growth and kind of show its momentum, then you think of valuing SoFi as a fintech, not really as a, um, or sorry, as a, as a SaaS company, not just as a bank. And so I think the combination of both of those together shows a really strong vision for the company along with a, uh, just a, an amazing, legendary CEO. And so that one also has a decent amount of my capital as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. SoFi, of course, you know, kind of getting in the news recently with that Supreme Court decision not to forgive the student loans. So definitely an interesting opportunity. And, you know, we could we could be ready to buy this dip, right? I think the stock is down a bit today. Well, all stocks are down today now. All stocks are down today. <laughs> a big red day. I was actually watching your live stream this morning. I was wondering, you were also talking a little bit about the uh, recent news. Of course, we had um, the uh, Zuckerberg-Musk duel, which continues now. It's Facebook against Twitter uh, with a, uh, well, Inst or Instagram slash Facebook uh, coming out with the uh, threads, I believe it's called, that competitor to Twitter. Uh, how do you yep. feel about that? What are, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Is it is this a good move for, for Facebook or Meta rather? It's a great move for Meta. Absolutely a great move for Meta. Um, you know, Meta is basically like, Zucks and the way I've seen him talk about it is saying that we want to create a platform that is text-based. Uh, that has a billion people on it. So Zuck's vision is, can we get a billion people on a sort of town square talking uh, in an interesting way? And, you know, when I see that, I'm like, okay, that's an interesting vision because Twitter has had almost, almost 20 years to try to get to a billion users and they're kind of stuck at like 
half a billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of those aren't even daily active users. I think it's like 250 million daily. So to me, when I think of that, I don't think it's a question of poor execution on Twitter. I mean, definitely execution has not been amazing under the previous administration. But I think it's a problem with the medium. I think like now that I use Twitter, I remember, so I used Twitter in high school. And when I was using Twitter, all my friends were on it. And so I actually like tweeted with my friends all day. That's why I would check Twitter. And so I was looking for like what my friends were saying. That shifted when I got to college and I basically never cared about Twitter anymore. And then when I got out of college and I started my startup and I, you know, I, I started getting into entrepreneurship a lot more, I, I found community on Twitter. I, like, I originally joined Twitter to see if I can find investors to invest in my startup. And so Twitter became a central hub of information for me. And, and that's when you notice like, okay, if you're trying to build a brand, you're trying to build attention for whatever you're doing. And I was trying to build a startup. I was trying to build attention. You need followers. You need engagement. You need people that are caring about your shit. And so Twitter is one of those easy places you go to. What I quickly realized is that no one cares about you on Twitter because like you tweeting some random thought, some random microblog is like, who in the world is going to care about it, right? Why is it valuable? Why is it important? And so to succeed on Twitter, you've got to pick a niche and really dominate that niche so aggressively. And the key to dominating that niche is not only to create incredibly valuable content, but you've got to create content that is able to be replicated on a daily basis in order to keep followers coming back in order to keep new people coming into the funnel. And stocks and investing actually is one of the best ways to tap into that type of community. Music is also a great, sports is a great, right? Like these are things that constantly have news that you can constantly share your opinion on. And then if your opinion is decent enough, enough people might start following you and actually care about what you have to say. That is like the key to how Twitter works. And the problem is what I've just said is very few people are able to identify that niche and actually care enough about tweeting every single day and putting out their intellectual thoughts out into the world because it's hard, right? Like not everyone is a thinker and or a writer. I mean, you have to have a specific style of writing as well to get people to care. So it's a really hard medium to succeed in, which is, I think, a problem with the overarching medium of the platform, uh, not necessarily a user problem. Zuck's argument is, hey, we've got 3 billion users. Let's just show them this app and let's get one third of them to come. It could work. And I think it's a smart move to try. Absolutely smart. If anything, if it fails, you know, maybe they wasted a couple hundred million trying to do it, but that's nothing to them. Um, if it works, though, they have a new advertising model and they get to challenge uh, Twitter in terms of user attention. So the only problem with using threads right now is I think they've in- they're trying to integrate your social cluster in terms of your Instagram friend social graph to get mm-hmm. into the platform. And I don't really want my Instagram friends seeing my thoughts. And I mean, if they do, I don't care, but I-, I don't want that type of a community. I want a more focused community, which is why I like Twitter. So I think it's going to be hard for them to 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 integrate this kind of like, I, I want to build a brand and presence and authority, but I have all my friends from high school following me, kind of like a weird ick vibe when I get there. Mm. And then the question of can they create a recommendation algorithm that actually gets you in front of the right people to see your stuff. Also, the UI sucks. If you scroll through it really fast, you just see a bunch of their like emojis. Like they have a lot of stuff to fix, but do could they could they do it? They got 11 million users in seven hours. They definitely have a shot. It's just a question now of if they'll you know be able to execute. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Some very interesting points there about Twitter and you know how how important it is to pick a niche and difficult it is to build an audience. Now, getting to the subject a little bit, uh, we've talked a lot about tech and AI. I'm guessing you also have some thoughts on blockchain and crypto. I'd love to hear that because you know I've I talk a lot about this on Seeking Alpha. So, any thoughts on Bitcoin? Uh, you know, I've just never been a big holder of crypto. Um. I look, I believe it'll run in the next rally. I just don't want to have any, I just, I, I, I never felt comfortable owning it. It's, it's not anything moral or anything like that. I just like the volatility for me is a little bit much. I kind of feel like I'm gambling when I buy it. And at this stage of my life, I don't want to be gambling. Do I think it is a good 
long-term bet over the next 10 years, maybe, and probably 80% yes, it'll return even from these levels versus um, not having it. So should I have a little bit of my portfolio in Bitcoin? Probably, but I just see so many underpriced opportunities on the market that are like, I can see the return. I can see the numbers. I can understand how we get there. Whereas Bitcoin, it's literally me throwing up a gamble because I don't believe in the actual uh, efficacy of the product. I mean, I think the whole... Mm -hmm. I think the idea of digital gold and currency is all nonsense. No one's actually going to use it. I don't, no one's actually transacting Bitcoin like that. I, do I think? Do I believe speculating on it in terms of its growth is good? Hundred percent. Do I think the actual thing matters? Not really. And I feel like that for all of crypto. I'm just not a big fan of it. But I could be incredibly wrong on this, and Bitcoin becomes like a reserve currency for the world. It becomes a really big thing. I just don't know if it will. So instead of wasting my time and an energy trying to really think about that, I just don't worry about it. And if it goes up, then I'm happy for the people that have it. But mm -hmm. I kind of just like owning stocks that I can actually understand a little bit more. Interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did, does Palantir own, it doesn't own crypto, but it does own gold, I believe. Did Card buy some gold? They did. They sold 50 million worth of gold last month. Uh -huh. So they have no more gold. Uh, they have most of their money in short-term treasuries, yielding them 3 or 4%. Uh, and they have no Bitcoin. But Peter Thiel, the founder of Palantir, is very bullish on Bitcoin. Right, exactly. Now, we've talked a lot about Palantir, SoFi. Um, in terms of sectors, we've of course talked about AI. Are there any other sectors that you are particularly bullish on moving forward? Now, you've mentioned fintech as well. Healthcare, you kind of talked a little bit about. Uh, those areas that you think are going to grow? I think energy. Energy? I think energy is big. I mean, a company like Enphase or Tesla, in terms of what Enphase is doing with microinverters and what Tesla is doing with ramping up overall energy production. I mean, energy is going to be big. We have a big climate change problem. Mm -hmm. We have to solve that problem. And the only way to solve it is through renewables and innovation. And solar penetration in the United States or even across the world is like 3%. So there's so much room for solar to grow as a company. And so then the best companies are Solar Edge and Phase underneath that umbrella. And then overall, what Tesla's doing with energy, I think that business is growing like 800% year over year. Um, mm -hmm. Tesla might be one of the largest manufacturers of energy in the world if they end up getting to that scale. So I think energy is also really exciting. Absolutely. Quite quite bullish on Tesla then too, I take it? I don't have any Tesla stock. I sold my Tesla uh, about a month ago, probably bad timing, uh, to load up on some other things that I thought were a little bit more undervalued. I'm bullish on Tesla. I'm very bullish. I just, I missed out on Tesla early, so I never felt comfortable buying it at mm -hmm. $700, 800000000000 billion. Right. Um, so, you know, if Tesla returns, that's great. I just, I have some plays that I'm more convicted in that I think will do very well over the next year and a half. And so if those do well, at the end of the day, I care about cash more than I care about ideologically. Like I have to have some Tesla because if Tesla doesn't return the way these other positions can return, then I just don't care that much about it. Right, of course. And now I'm curious, when it comes to investing, do you do any kind of a technical analysis, any charting? Is that something you include in your investing? I'm starting to learn more about it. Uh, so like relative strength index, moving day averages, all that stuff. I am by no means an expert. I'm trying to get more educated on understanding and seeing these opportunities from a technical perspective. I like looking at the fundamentals and seeing like, like Robinhood at $9.05 two weeks ago. I, I bought a lot of options because I was like, this is there's no reason for it to dip. Mm -hmm. The cash that I have on the balance sheet is almost equivalent to the market cap. When the bull market comes back, Robinhood trading volatility is going to be insane, which is going to be great for payment for order flow. The product is amazing. They're three cents away from gap profitability. So these kind of like fundamental qualitative and quantitative uh, metrics I can take into account to be able to make an investment decision. And then on the technicals, the people that I've talked to said Robinhood looks like it's ready to explode, which is great. I just don't understand those as well. So that didn't inform my decision, mm -hmm. but I'm starting to learn a lot more about the technicals. I don't think I could ever make an investment decision based on technicals though, because it's just... 
to me, I, I need a fundamental reason to hold the company even through the red days like today. Um, so that's where the fundamentals come to play for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Favorite book, books, or resources for learning about investing? So that book in the back, Zero to One, uh, mm -hmm. probably my favorite book on investing by Peter Thiel. Uh, that's a good book. I like a, a, another motivational book called Above All Else. It's a skydiver who got injured and then ended up becoming a world champion. And so the book is kind of the process of his mental mindset to, to be able to do that. Um, but I don't read a lot of books, to be honest. I listen to a lot of podcasts. You mm -hmm. know, and maybe I should, I just, I, I find reading a little bit, it's not that it's boring. It's just, I, I just don't have the attention span to sit and read. I need to have something playing in the background. So audio is what captures a lot of my attention. And from there, you know, lectures around what Peter Thiel has said before and, and Howard Marks, these and Peter Lynch, these are the guys I listen to to try to get a better understanding of investing. Mm -hmm. What kind of uh, any particular podcast you're listening to right now? Uh, I like uh, the one Josh Richard does. Um, on, uh, he's one of the CNBC contributors, the, Cro the Crossroads and Friends, something like that. Mm -hmm. I forgot the name of it. But if you type in Josh Richard's podcast on Google, uh, on YouTube, it'll, it'll pop up. So he, he's, uh, he, you know, he's been a pretty good analyst that I've listened to for a, a long time. I like him. Uh, I love listening to Kathy talk, even though I disagree with her sometimes. Mm -hmm. I like listening to her thoughts on the markets, innovation, inflation, all that stuff. So yeah, pretty much that. Absolutely. Kathy, of course, another controversial figure, but, um, you know, I just, I'm curious, what is the, uh, zero to one, the book behind you, uh, what's that about more or less? Um, well, so the con the concept behind zero to one is how you take an idea from zero to one, mm -hmm. right? And in order to do that, um, you you have to be able to build something that doesn't really have competition from the rest of the world. And as a result, you have a monopoly kind of on that concept. So he, he says Google is a great example. There was a ton of competition for search engines in, in the year 2000. But Google developed a PageRank algorithm that so fundamentally differentiated it from all the other search engines that they essentially created a monopolistic business. They went from zero to one, which they had no competition on, and that's why the business exploded. So the whole concept is, can you think of an idea that's contrarian enough to be right? Because if you're right and you're on an island by yourself, you win. If you're wrong and you're on the island, you lose. And if you never even think of uh, a contrarian idea, you're always going to be you're never going to be differentiated enough. So that idea of being contrarian and right, I think is incredibly important to me. And so that's why I like uh, Zero to One. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it today. Now, of course, you're on YouTube. Uh, I think you're on Twitter as well. Before we uh, log off, please go ahead and let everyone know where they can find you on the internet and what you're doing. Yeah, YouTube at Amit is Investing, Twitter at Amit is Investing. You guys can sign up for my startup. We're trying to build the YouTube of audio, audio.io slash register. And uh, that's where you can find me. Also on threads now at It's Amit Kukreja, I-T-S-A-M-I-T-K-U-K-R-E-J-A. -I -I -E I'm on the threads now, so you can find me on the threads. <laughs> All right, well, there you have it, everyone. Do yourselves a favor and uh, go follow. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I uh, really enjoyed this, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Pragmatic Investor. If you aren't already, please go ahead and follow me on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening to the podcast. And remember that if you'd like more content on investing, I do a lot more on Seeking Alpha. You can find me there, James Ford, The Pragmatic Investor, where I cover crypto, the macro outlook, international stocks, 
and so much more.